Hi, this is Violet Lang. Welcome to my podcast, The Pleasure Path, all about love, dating, relationships, and femininity. I help successful, spiritual women find their pleasure and their power to create healthy partnership. This episode is an important reminder that mental health is so important, especially for mothers. My guest, Emily Adler-Mosqueda, shares her journey with late postpartum depression, as well as how to create a language-rich environment for our children so they reach all of their speech milestones, even when we're having a hard time and needing to reach out for support. Emily is also a speech-language pathologist and has a lot of wisdom to share, so tune in now. Welcome everyone to our next episode of The Pleasure Path. I am so excited to be here with Emily Adler-Mosqueda, who is an amazing woman that I know in different parts of my life, but she's here today to talk with us about some really important issues about being a mother who is connected to her children and the speech of her children, the language of her children, because she's a speech language pathologist, but also her own journey and the importance of every mother's journey in really getting the care, the resources and the support that they need. So I won't go too far into that, but I'm just delighted that Emily is here and she has so much wisdom to share with us. So Emily is a bilingual and bicultural pediatric speech language pathologist who specializes in serving Spanish speakers with communication disorders She is an Oregon board certified speech language pathologist and holds a certificate of clinical competence with the American Speech and Language Hearing Association. Emily started her career in 2009 working for the Early Intervention and Early Childhood Special Education Agency in Oregon. And in that capacity, she conducted bilingual speech and language assessments and provided intervention to primarily Spanish speaking children and their families birth to five years old. And then in the last you know, 11 years or so, Emily has done so many other things, including being a beautiful writer and an amazing mother. And I'm just excited that she's here to share her journey. So Emily, welcome. Thank you so much. So great to yes. be here. I'm so glad that you're here. I feel really honored that you, that you made the time. So let's start off with just sharing, us, sharing with us a little bit more about your journey and what you're passionate about. So my journey right now, I have uh, two little girls, six and three, and um, we're, we're managing being in a pandemic together. Um, and I know that I'm really pulling on resources that I cultivated after having um, a mental health breakdown, breakthrough um, in the later postpartum time. Um, with my second child. So around eight months um, was when kind of my life imploded, I say, and um, I really needed to have life stop as I knew it and get um, counseling supports. I took a leave of absence from my job. Um, I really needed to take care of myself. Um, Being a mom of two kids is no joke. And um, I I just assumed my husband and I assumed like we had it, we were good. We, we had done it before. So adding another one in was not going to be any big thing. And that we were very humbled, very, I wouldn't say very quickly, but there were, we were paying attention. We were trying to do things a little different, utilizing our knowledge from the first child. Um, but I started to kind of have these flare ups of kind of breakdowns and a day of kind of having a break from childcare would help. Um, but over time they kind of turned into a pattern and then kind of the floor fell out from underneath us. Um, 
But in that time that I took away from working, I really went to work full time in the sense of caring for myself. What did I need? Um, what, uh, yeah, what, what did I need? And um, so I, like I mentioned, counseling was part of that equation. Um, I, I wrote, I started asking myself questions um, kind of for the scientist as I'm trained to be, um, kind of like, how did I get here? What went, ast what went astray? Um, my two pregnancies were very different. My deliveries were really different. Um, okay, so I had a first experience. How, how different was it to my second? And realizing that um, you know, Pitocin, for example, was I had extended use of Pitocin with my second child, um, and I didn't have that with my first. And so um, just asking these different questions and then taking my questions to the literature. So I went to peer-reviewed journals and um, more questions and their answers led to other questions. And so um, I was learning and learning to educate myself and my, was part of my healing journey. The more information I had, the more context I had, and the more information I knew to kind of normalize what I, what I thought was making me crazy. Um, and so I started to, to write all that down and, and really candid, um, you know, scenic language of the moments that I had those insights, the moments of, that, of feeling like my skin was crawling and I wanted to rip myself apart, um, the moments of, of rage that I did not ex recognize myself. Um, and there was like this monster in, her, in my house and she looked like me and who was this person? Cause that didn't feel like who I was. So um, yeah, I've been um, working with a really great author, Molly Carol May, who um, has a wonderful um, story of her journey into motherhood along accompanied with rage and really big feelings. Um, and so that's been a, an amazing journey. And I, yeah, I have a complete manuscript about kind of what happened to me. And I really feel like this late postpartum, this time that is in that later part of the child's first year of life. And even into the second year of life that moms and families really need supports, um, that they, that they don't have, especially if they've already, if they're already a mom, feel like society just says, oh, you've got it. You've done this before. Um, pediatricians maybe don't need to check in as much. They're kind of writing on assumptions that everything's fine. Um, or th mostly that they, the mother's done this before. And, and I don't think that's a safe thing to do for our children. I think, um, I've really come to understand personally the importance of being aware of a mother's mental health, so maternal mental health, and then that relationship to the environment that they're providing for their child in the sense of language stimulation, um, just uh, how much they want to talk to their child and developing a relationship with their child. And um, not to say that it's always on the mother. There is There are dads that experience, um, you know, if it's a heterosexual relationship, experience uh, depression and their own kind of postpartum uh, adjustment because it is a huge adjustment to add a person into an already established relationship or a third person or a fourth person. Um, and I think making more time and space in our society to do that with supports, conscious supports, um, planful supports from multiple angles um, would ensure that, that those, those transitions are, are, are smoother for, for everybody involved. 
Absolutely. I mean, you shared so many important things and I want to highlight just a few that resonated with me. I'm sure there's many that are resonating with the people listening, but you mentioned staying curious and asking a lot of questions and looking into the science. And I find that so inspiring and liberating because what I heard was a lot of self-reflection and also getting resourced with the voices of others. And I think sometimes when we're going through a tough time, not to minimize what you're going through is that, but I know for myself, I can blame myself instead of just getting curious about, well, how have other people navigated through this instead of thinking, oh my gosh, there's something wrong with me and, and then keeping everything internal. But it sounds like you were really brave and got resourced and looked at other teachings that you could learn from and draw from. So I really just want to highlight that for anyone, anyone listening. And the other thing that you mentioned that I think we'll be getting into is about the rage and motherhood. And it seems like our society thinks that mothering just means being nice and being compassionate or, you know, being a tiger mom, but there's not a lot of space in our society for being a human and also being a mother, which includes human emotions. So yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. Like, can you share a little bit about that and, and maybe also share about how that's led you to have greater capacity for your children's emotions? Almost definitely. Um, Going through my late postpartum experience, I really uh, got acquainted with my nervous systems and learned about them more officially, more formally, and really realized that for my first postpartum, I was really in a freeze response that I really had lived a lot of my life in. And so during the second postpartum, not only was I depleted. Um, my adrenals were really shot. Um, I was depressed. I have seasonal affective disorder, so seasonal depression. And I didn't, I didn't realize that that meant I suffered from depression. I was in that much denial. Um, so realizing that that put me at risk for having postpartum depression, particularly with the extended use of Pitocin in my second delivery. And, um, but getting to know the nervous system and seeing after I'd experienced these moments of rage that really scared me and um, woke me up to be, to realize I, I needed help. I needed to look into this. This wasn't, not to say that those feelings couldn't reside in me, but they were so foreign to me that I, that they, they scared me. Um, I now understand that I was very dysregulated. I was functioning at a whole different stress response um, than I had lived most of my life. So here I was kind of thawing out and going from being frozen and not having much of a response to things to really having a response and kind of needing to recalibrate myself to hold the whole spectrum of what I could feel and feeling more. Um, and they talk about, you know, building your, your window of tolerance to different feelings in yourself. Um, and I had noticed that during my second pregnancy, my, my, my patience started to wane. Um, as I had less reserves in my body being pregnant for the second time and really noticing my daughter's big feelings were getting to be too much for me, who is a highly sensitive person as well. Um, and so I, I kind of had some inclinations during pregnancy of the second pregnancy that um, her big feelings and my response to them, like I didn't have such tolerance for them, but that I needed to, to, to work on that. And I wanted to work on that. And it really prompted me to look at my own childhood when, um, from my own ex experience and likely my, my parents' experience, 
you didn't get to display lots of big messy emotions. There wasn't um, family culture tolerance, societal cultural tolerance for that. So I, I learned to, um, to, to keep it together. And here with my daughter, my husband and I have, have set, held space for many emotions. Well, if you hold the big space, there are going to be big emotions that fill up that space. So um, it was, you know, even, even then there was this learning of um, the relevance of my childhood experience showing up in my mothering and um, being challenged to look at other pieces of my development and experiences in the past um, of how they were being um, I don't know, at times triggered, but I want to say maybe tickled or invited to show up or have me look at them. Um, and um, I'm inherently a curious person. And, and I've also found that when I feel like something's wrong, and very naturally we say wrong with me, um, that when I notice myself and I distinguish shame and toxic shame and healthy shame, then I, I would take the mental work that it is to kind of get oriented of, okay, is this, is this appropriate shame that I'm feeling or am I toxically shaming myself? And if I am, how to, how to undo that and finding resources and, and friends and, and even having the being able to dialogue with my partner to be able to, to, to help me out of those dark days um, or hours or, or weeks, whatever they happened to be. Um, but just that internal knowledge was, was invaluable to be able to show up for my kids or understand why at the end of the day, I have to put on yard noise headphones because the whining and the needs are just so aggravating to my ears, um, that the best part of me will show up if the noise is a little quieter. Um, and just learning to the, the kind of the, my own personal hacks about what I need and what my nervous system needs. Thank you so much for sharing that articulation of the self-awareness and knowing your own needs. And you had mentioned before we started recording that self-care can feel like a full-time job. And I'm so glad you mentioned that because a lot of times we think, well, self-care is just something bonus. It's just extra. It's just what I put in those little time that I have. But when you become a mom and I can only imagine for having two children, those little nuggets of time basically evaporate and, and are not predictable at all. So I love this orientation of looking at it as a big part of your life, not just something that you squeeze in and also something that you can resource in community and through community. That seems to be a theme of what you've been sharing with me about not feeling like we have to just figure it out or pretend that everything's cool, that we can actually use this as an opportunity, like you said, invite versus trigger inviting in these deeper levels of, of healing. So tell me more about, about that, about, you know, how moms can resource themselves, how they can know if something is, is something that needs to be looked at. I think you have a unique perspective because of your work with children. You could see, oh, I'm not showing up in a way that's really engaging and creating this rich language environment. But a lot of parents wouldn't even probably know that they weren't showing up in the way that their child needed and developmentally. Yeah. Um, so I, I think, you know, uh, some people for self-care, they've associated it with um, things that are, are very enjoyable, like getting your nails done, having a spa day um, and things like that. And, um, and honestly, making sure your basic needs are met. Like, have I eaten? 
Have I showered when I want to? Have I gone to the bathroom when my body is telling me that I need to? Um, kind of making sure all those basic needs are met. And I, I've really learned that doing body scans about um, kind of, you know, making this decision making, um, that's me putting my oxygen mask on first. And it took me, it took me a while to reorient that actually putting myself first for my basic needs was putting my children first. Because if I'm not resourced appropriately, I can't show up for them in the way that I want to with having patience, being silly, being creative, and um, things like that that are really life enhancing for everybody. Um, so that, that does take um, some time to cultivate that body awareness, just that um, internal awareness, um, and being able to kind of maybe quiet a critical voice in your head that um, wants you to think that you're not worthy of that time, that those needs aren't, you know, putting yourself first, oh, well, you know, that must be nice type of thing. So it, that took some kind of internal um, uh, battling honestly, in some points to, to get to that. Um, you know, thinking about how your, your kids want to have a quality relationship with you, just like you want to have a quality relationship with a partner or a friend. And your kids are needing to learn about the world around them. So you're in this role as a communication partner, but also as a teacher. And um, you may not feel like your own experience of, with teachers or with education might be of all different flavors. And yet here as a parent, you're inherently a teacher. And so I feel like our society does a disservice to families, both of, of all genders, uh, that there isn't enough child development knowledge given in regular high school. Um, I think uh, the most a parent will spend or the most time a person will spend with a child is when they become a parent. And um, that's really intense to be uh, facing the nuances of child development um, when you can't send the baby back. <laughs> you can't, you know, you're practicing as it is happening and, um, and you're gonna, it, you're, the learning curve is, is, is intense. So um, it, there's, there's that. Um, and working with, um, working with kids before I had my own kids, I got to learn how their behaviors, maybe they weren't talking or they were late talkers, their behaviors were communication. And as someone who is um, skilled and trained to, to look at nonverbal communication, um, you know, I, I really saw opportunities to engage with kids in ways that I've had to teach other parents that, oh, look, your child, by looking at you really intently, they're, they're communicating to you. Um, by pulling your hand, they're, they're wanting you to come with them. Um, by pulling on you to, to, to get attention, they're saying, hey, I, I want to show you something or look at me. Um, so ways that kids get creative to communicate if they're they're really little and they you know they're they're just developing their language or if they happen to be delayed in their language they're going to likely find other ways to get your attention and um accepting all those bids for communication is can be challenging but also i think can be um, a great way to to get to know the child in a in a really sweet way
Yes. And what an amazing way to develop emotional intelligence for all of your mm -hmm. relationships. I'm thinking of a lot of the things that you shared with the frame of you would want a great relationship with your child, just like you would with any relationship. And I think about how many women that I work with or might be listening who would never want to spend a whole evening with their partner, both of them just looking on their cell phones. They'd want to have connection. They'd want to have talking. And yet there's this thing that sometimes happens and to myself included where I feel tired and I'm like, okay, can she just play with her toys for a little bit where I'm not wanting to be as engaging with my language and how that that can feel alienated, alienating probably to her. And if I can be more present and more engaging and more creative, like you shared, how beautiful that would be for all of my relationships. But also thinking of the sustainability, you know, doing it when you have the bandwidth and acknowledging and not being critical of yourself of, I mean, for me, I've had to move book time to the earlier in the day than bedtime. I am burnt out with whatever month it is of being in a pandemic. I have just bagged books at bedtime because I can't do it in a way that makes me feel good. I feel, I get agitated and irritated and I want a break. I, I'm done. So, but I also know the value of reading books or looking at books, however, utilizing books in whatever way, whether you read the story, name the pictures, um, let the kid flip through it and let you, them show you what they want to look at. Um, but moving that to be earlier in the day, I, I'm much more successful and I'm setting myself up for success um, because I, I want to be successful. And I know I just have more energy earlier in the day. So, you know, in that by checking in with yourself as a parent and knowing when you're ripe to share and have a bonding experience and part of and, and, and make yourself available to your child in a meaningful way to optimize that. And then to know that there will be naturally other times of the day where you're not as engaged and um, in the same way or the same level of intensity. And that's okay because we also don't want children to become um, so accustomed to always having a particular level of attention. That independent yeah. play, um, imaginative play uh, is, is valuable. So it's a, it's, it's kind of finding that balance and, um, and checking the inner critic when you're getting that, Oh, you should be doing this. You should be doing that. And you can just say, well, I am at this time or on these days when it works best for, for everybody. Mm -hmm. Thank you for that word optimize. And let's talk, if you don't mind, a little bit about this window of maternal mental health beyond just the first six weeks or even the first few months. That feels really important. And then I'd love to hear more about the speech language aspect of, of being present for your children and creating a language rich environment. But I really was drawn to what you had shared before about the postpartum period and the care for mothers needing to be extended because my daughter is now almost eight months and I feel like I'm barely just getting my legs underneath me in some ways. And also I can't, I can't imagine all of a sudden, you know, figuring it out <laughs> like in the next, in the next few months or something. And so, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit about that. Like what, what's the vision that you have for the way that mothers are cared for in our society or thought of in society and what sort of support do they need in those first like five years of a child's life? Most definitely. And, and those are very crucial five years. Um, from the research that I've done, I found this wonderful article that gave me so much uh, hope. And it says that the anatomy structures of the brain, so the actual gray matter of the brain, 
is pruned so significantly for a woman during pregnancy, similar to uh, puberty. So the dramatic, and that's the only other time that such a dramatic pruning is, happens. And where all that energy goes to in the woman's more adult brain is into the area of theory of mind. So how we kind of imagine from other people's perspective how they might be feeling, which is why you're always thinking, are they too hot? Are they cold? What are they hungry? Like you got baby on your brain because that's how your brain at that time is wired to be. So you're not obsessed with your baby. Um, you are designed to tune in because our babies have to continue their development externally because of their head size um, until about eight months. At about eight months, then you know they can sit up on their own. It's 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 like you know when a uh, a horse has a baby, the baby can stand up and do lots more than our babies can do upon birth. Um, so that that gave me pause, and it and it lasts that pruning that you don't regenerate your pre-baby brain until about two years after. So I was like, okay, for two years, my the anatomy of my brain is nothing like it was till pre-pregnancy. So I have till the two, that until quote unquote that two-year-old birthday to really just have so much compassion for myself that I can't remember things or I'm forgetting things or I just don't feel like myself. Um, because that's just the anatomy. That's not even the sleep debt that you are incurring raising a young child. And um, so I think just that awareness and that knowledge for moms to know that you have an 18 month old and you are kind of feeling like you have more of your brain cells and your capacity and self-recognition than you did at 12 months, but still not like you did before you had the baby. Yeah, because you got like at least another six months until your brain is fully back to maybe anything that it looked like anatomically, let alone your life experiences that you've been having in the meantime. Mm -hmm. So I think, um, I think that knowledge, I think pediatricians working from that knowledge of just science and uh, anatomy uh, to, to be checking in with moms. And I really think there could be better monitoring of mental health longer through that first year of well baby checks. I took the Edinburgh scale of depression at like the two week check and the month check. And I was just like patting myself on the back that I got that score of zero. And I was like, oh, look at me. I'm so like, I've got my brain together. I got my mind together. Though if you'd given me that scale at the six month checkup, the eight month checkup, the 12 month checkup, I would have showed up of having issues. Suicide ideation, uh, like dark intrusive thoughts, that didn't show up until later. It didn't show up, especially with two kids, till I had incurred more of a sleep debt. Mm. And when you have a sleep debt, you also, your hormones at night can't replenish themselves. So you get in these hormone deficient cycles. Um, also, I didn't know about the importance of getting regulated and my, my nervous systems being able to regulate. That happens with sleep. So um, as much as I tried to sleep, um, it was hard to sleep because my nervous system was so activated. Um, so I just think that knowing that um, postpartum could, and in some, some, some natural paths, some, I know Chinese medicine, um, who my, my husband's a doctor of Chinese medicine, and he agrees, you're essentially postpartum until you're perimetopausal. So 
And if you have subsequent children, you're like adding postpartum onto postpartum. So I feel like as you're, you know, prepubescent to pubescent, there's these hormone stages uh, and periods of a woman's life. And the postpartum time um, can, can last longer. Um, whether she has issues or struggles to the degree that she does at three weeks postpartum, six months postpartum, eight months, you know, as it goes out, I think they will change. But the fact that you, you burst yourself as a mother, either once or repeatedly, um, you can't undo that. And so uh, thinking that you're going to somehow bounce back to before, I'm sorry, you, you can't go back through that door. Um, and in most cases, I don't think people want to. Um, and so I, so if society could see that a woman is now, that this being a mother is this different state of a person, um, I think there could be better designed medical supports. Um, I know that I've heard talk of the design of mother-specific medicine. And we have geriatric medicine, we have pediatric medicine, but what about the medicine, the atric for mothers? Um, and I think that could really support all of the, the women um, that are um, holding and creating so much of life in our societies. Mm. Yeah, I'm feeling that so much in my heart, just the passion you have for this and these visions and these ideas that are basic, but at the same time revolutionary, because so much of our society has been programmed on efficiency versus cycles and being yes. in the the fullness of, of the cycle. I know I'm trying to rewire that within myself, like not judging my day based on how much I got done or how productive or how efficient I was. And I hope that that carries beyond motherhood because that's not exactly what I want to go to the deathbed thinking. It's like, oh, did I finish my to-do list every day? Right. How productive was I? But it, it becomes, at least for me, like really insidious. So as you're talking, it feels so much more whole and so much more balanced, which I have to imagine affects the nervous system of our children and them feeling whole and balanced as well. So let's talk about what are the major communication milestones for children from birth to age three? Yeah, so um, communication is kind of overarching. There's two pieces, how we understand our receptive uh, language and then our expressive language, the, the vocalizations, the verbalizations. Um, you want to hear lots of different sounds from your real little one, um, lots of different cooing and uh, vowel sounds, vocal play. They're probably playing with their, the volume of their voice um, that they can kind of turn it on and off. Uh, going over the bumps in a stroller, they might vocalize and hear their voice uh, modulate when they do that. That is all exploratory and wonderful. We want kids to be curious about themselves, particularly their voice. Um, by age one, um, for a typically hearing child, you want them to be have to have many around at least fifty single words, and they could also be words and signs. You know, introducing baby sign. Um, I spoke Spanish to my children, to my first child, both of them, um, but predominantly Spanish to my first. So she learned Spanish first, and then had other people spoke English to her. But I also signed, so she was learning sign and Spanish and English from infancy. Um, and I wanted to give her what we call total language, total communication opportunities. So she was getting a visual referent with the sign, um, different uh, 
oral input with two different languages, um, and she was able to navigate all of them. The brain is so fascinating. Um, so yeah, so by year one, you want them to be using many single words. By the time they're, by their first, their, excuse me, their second birthday, you want to see two words being put together. So it's kind of nice. By one, it's one words, two, two words, but it's really kind of the beginning of that birthday, at that birthday time, not by the end of that year. And approaching three, um, you want to be hearing three words uh, put, put together, kind of more sounds come in, um, the clarity of their speech. Um, and as they, you know, again, with four, their, their, their sentences will be longer and longer. And they should be being more clear in their speech. So um, by the time you have a four-year-old, you want to understand about 80%, 85% of what they say. Um, as they get to be five, you want to understand 95 to 100% of what they say. So um, if you have a two-year-old and you understand um, around 60%, 70% of what they say, they're on track. If they're really hard to understand, even by two, um, or maybe don't are only using a lot of single words and they haven't put two words together, um, you know, I would approach your pediatrician about that or um, start having a conversation. I know that at least in, in my area of Oregon, they're um, pretty good at monitoring um, those, de those developmental communication milestones. Um, but it's also important that your child is um, responding, so that receptive language development. Um, really nice to know that by age one, they're able to do a lot of single uh, step commands. Go get your diaper, go get your shoes, um, those types of things. And by two, two of them together. Get your shoes and bring them to me. Um, by three and on and, and so forth, um, they can do more complex um, types of, of questions, uh, excuse me, of responding to your questions and your, your step directions. Um, They'll be asking and answering different types of questions around three and four. Um, my three-year-old just turned three this month and she's in the whys. Why, why? Everything's why. And I'm like, all right, we're in the why stage. This is great. Um, so it's, it's nice to know those as just kind of um, a, a reference to where you want your child to be aiming for. Um, and if, if at any time a parent is concerned or a mother is concerned about their child's language development um, or development in general, to, to utilize the relationship with that pediatrician to say, I'm not sure that they're on track or I'm curious. Um, the CDC also has a really nice um, developmental milestones that you can go and a lot of resources online that are really reliable um, to kind of do your own verification if you're, if you're concerned and you can't get an appointment real uh, quickly. Mm -hmm. That's a great resource. Thank you for sharing that. How do parents, and I'm talking more specifically about mothers, but fathers too, you know, what can they do to create a language rich environment to help children meet those milestones? And what do they do if they're having a hard time creating that language rich environment because of postpartum challenges? Yeah. So what makes a rich language environment is, um, Lots of, lots of words, lots of naming. We are a creature that names things to have them be real. So we need the name for something for it to exist. So um, talking while you're doing diaper change of, of labeling, oh, I'm gonna lift up your feet, I'm gonna clean your bottom. Uh, oh, that's stinky. Um, you know, it's a stinky poop. Um, here's a clean one. So a lot of just naming in the, the everyday actions, that kind of narration. Um, is helpful to children. Um, 
not to say that you need to do it all the time, but good stints of time doing that narration um, is really good to get in practice as the, as the adult so that it doesn't feel strange or different from maybe being really quiet while you did went about your life before kids. Um, talking about what you're doing as the adult, if, if you're, um, let's say you've got an eight month old and she, you know, she's watching or she's, you know, on a walk and you can be talking about, um, oh, I just saw that really red, that red car went fast. Um, we're gonna go up the hill, look at this purple flower. So I mentioned those developmental milestones of a child using many single words and then joining words. And you as the parent can talk typically as you would to an adult and speak that way to your child, as well as highlight one or two words that are more directed at your child. So you're speaking more at their level, but one, one more than, than they're using. And then when they start using those two words, you'll add another word. So if they say big ball, yes, big blue ball, that you're gonna add and model that next, kind of what's coming next, um, and be really functioning in what we call the zone of proximal development. So when we're in the zone of development, we are developing and things kind of flowing easily. And it's that next step harder that we need modeled for us that we're working towards. So as, as, the, as the parents, we can be doing that. Utilizing your, your daily routines is really a great way to model language, talking in the bathtub about things being wet and dry and um, just talking about all different types of uh, qualities of things, quantities of things, um, is is helpful describing your own feelings about things something even even to an infant they are going to be reading your facial expression they are going to be reading hearing your tone of voice your body language of uh you know some you get some bad news or you're disappointed you're like oh i'm disappointed um and just by you labeling it not only for yourself is that regulating and acknowledging to your experience of what happened but you're modeling for your child oh okay, that's disappointment. Oh, and look how my adult did that. Mm. Because we are also um, given the task of co-regulating our children. And that is a huge responsibility. Um, and so when people are dysregulated, stressed, um, they haven't gotten the particular input that they need. If they're runners pre-pregnancy and they haven't been able to run and their, their body and their whole system is really used to that deep impact really regularly, that mama is going to feel it, that she's not getting her running. It's not just the endorphins, but it's the, it's the physiological input that her brain is wired to need to be relaxed. Um, or same with that papa. So, Making time to get that input in other ways is crucial. Again, oxygen mask first, and then we get to the kiddos. Um, if between you and your partner, or if you're by yourself, getting supports of other caring adults um, who can do these language stimulating activities. Um, there's a really great resource called Speak Easy Community. It's a it's a um, it's a profile on on Instagram, but also has they've just come out with an app that is super wonderful to show where your child is at in their language development and give you daily ideas of how to and to, what to do because if you're in the brain frog or the the jet lag of being sleep deprived thinking of these things if you're not trained is really hard 
Um, so there are some really great resources. That one is developed by a former student of mine, um, and she's a speech language pathologist. Um, it's also bilingual applications um, available. So um, just kind of knowing where your resources are to, to help yourself and then to, um, to delegate. If, if you need to, if you're having such a, a, a crisis that residential treatment is, is needed, um, you can, if I was in that position and I, I would say I was close to that, I, um, when, we, when we hired some additional help, I took it upon myself to train her about how I wanted her to interact with my eight-month-old because I couldn't do it very well at that point, but I knew that my eight-month-old needed it. And so that was kind of where my professional hat helped my personal mothering um, of I needed to bow out, but I also needed to ensure that she got my, my youngest got the, the language rich environment that her sister had been afforded by my youth when you know, being a firstborn. So um, delegating and, and educating or, or saying, I need help to take care of my child and I want you to do these activities with them. Um, I had to really uh, negotiate with my inner critic that I wasn't being bossy, uh, obsessive, um, all these other negative things of being a too much mother. And I had to check my, my inner critic and say, no, as a professional, I know what my child needs. And as a mother, I can't do that. However, this other person who's resourced and has slept for months and is not sleep deprived and is um, young and creative and wants to do a good job, they are eager, she was eager to learn what I wanted her to do, and um, she did a beautiful job. And I was, I had then the, 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 I was rest assured that, that my, but by taking care of myself, my, my, my baby was also being cared for in a way that I wanted her to be and that I knew that I couldn't, but I would as soon as I could. Mm. I love those strategies you shared. They're so brilliant and important to recognize we don't have to do it all ourselves. We just have to trust that we know what needs to happen and it's okay to be agentic and directive in that way so that our children can have what, what they need to have. We don't, I think by asking for help is how we become super moms versus pretending that we can, you know, exactly, do it exactly. And how beautiful then that your child gets to have that other relationship. It's not all you, which is beautiful that it, it needs to be in so many ways. And there's, and the connection of having, um, particularly if, if it's a biological child, you have that, um, you know, that, that connection cannot be taken away from you, um, regardless of your mental health state. And it's beautiful to have children learn to navigate other relationships with caring, safe adults um, that are in their life and get to have those experiences as well. Absolutely. And well, to talk about why they have them, because mommy needs to take care of mommy and it's mommy's turn and then it'll be your turn with mommy and that mommy's going to be able to even be a better mommy having taken care of mommy. Mm. Yes I love thinking about how this next generation of children are getting to learn about self-care through their parents own self-care. This has been so fun to hear about these strategies, your background, what to look out for on the mothering journey and for those women who are listening who don't have their children um, or may be planning on children or women who've been already raising children, I think there's a lot of juicy tips that we can apply to other parts of our life and other relationships in our life too. So 
Thank you, Emily, so much for sharing all of your wisdom. And thank you for having me. Yeah. How can people find you who want to learn more about your work and your perspectives? Um, yeah, you can um, follow me on Instagram at Emily Adler Mosqueda. Um, I also have uh, a website at that same, my full name, Emily Adler Mosqueda.com. And I love direct messages or any type of support. I mean, as my formal training is speech language pathology. And so any type of tips or recommendations are, would be definitely given from a mom's perspective and um, my own, what's worked for me and um, just really wanting to, to be a support and a resource to other mamas who um, are maybe struggling and they're struggling at a time that society thinks they should have it together. Mm. Thank you for that. I will put those links in the show notes. And I also look forward to hearing more about your memoir when it comes out. And I believe there's also your children's book that people can find that I'll put a link to the show notes as well. So thank you so thank much you. for being a guest on the show. It was great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for tuning in and turning on for healthy love because better relationships mean more power, more creativity, and a better planet. I'm here to end the suffering of abuse and loneliness, and it starts with you. Please subscribe to my show and leave a review.